I had this awesome opportunity at Punahou to have an amazing education and feel like I have the potential to go out and solve any problem. And at the same time, I recognize that not everybody has that. And so I see education as maybe the most important lever for social change. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. My Spanish five class, you know, second semester seniors in the non quote-unquote honors track of Spanish, we were well served by a, some sort of external motivation to do something in their senior spring. And so they loved the idea of food and gathering people. And I floated this idea of prototyping a cafe and they were all in, like they wanted to run it. And so we converted the, there's a little art gallery on the edge of the library at Punahou now. And we turned it into a coffee shop. And people could come in and sit and do work there. They could get a drink or a little snack. Different groups had different little experiences that they designed. Like our kids would ask people to order in Spanish and give them, you know, little cheat sheets about how to do that. But it was really an experiment in what learning spaces can look like. And it also served the needs for my kids of engaging with the language in a way that gave them purpose. This is Josh Rapoon, and you are listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider joining the rapidly growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Since 2015, Emily McCarran has served as the Punahou School Academy Principal. Punahou is the largest and one of the oldest private schools in the United States. Originally from Vermont, Emily graduated from Colby College in Maine, where she majored in Spanish and biology and was a two-sport athlete. She served as captain of the Alpine ski team and lacrosse team. Emily holds two master's degrees in Spanish literature from St. Louis University and in educational leadership from the Teachers College at Columbia University. She completed her PhD in educational technology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where her dissertation examined the role of teacher care on a student's online learning experience. Emily began her teaching career at the Thatcher School in Ojai, California, where she taught, coached, and served as a residential advisor for six years before joining the Punahou faculty in 2006. At Punahou, she has taught all levels of Academy Spanish and a year of biology, served as department head of both Asian, Pacific, and European languages, and as Academy Summer School Director. She also led the Woe International Center prior to becoming Academy Principal in the 2015-2016 school year. Emily is the co-author of the series Take Action Guides to World-Class Learners and serves on the boards of the Global Online Academy and the Mastery Transcript Consortium. 
She is passionate about educational change and the moral imperative to provide all students with the schools they deserve and the world with the schools it needs. Jim Scott, who served as Punahou School's president for 25 years, said the following about Emily, quote, within Punahou's rigorous academic program, Emily has broadened student choice, voice, and opportunity around experiential learning, student wellness, inclusion and equity, and interdisciplinary learning that is relevant and enduring. A thoughtful, innovative, joyful, and evolving educator, she has been a national educational thought leader in global education, cross-cultural immersion, mastery learning, and educational technology. And now, here's my conversation with Emily McCarran. Emily McCarran, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So, Emily, you grew up and worked on a horse farm in rural Vermont from age 8 to 22. And you called that time, quote, some serious learning. And you also noted that you did go to this thing called, quote, school, but it had fewer enduring lessons. So you were also the captain of the alpine skiing team at Colby College which prompts me to ask, what is this, quote, serious learning, the enduring lessons learned from horses and from your time as captain of an alpine skiing team? Mm, It's interesting that they're similar, actually. I think the lessons from those two sort of long-term endeavors of my youth, you know, the first and maybe most obvious one is just sort of the value of hard work and the the sort of the certainty of hard work mm. to be able to do the things you want to do. And then also I hadn't thought about this, but when you put those two things together, the enduring pursuit of goals over years, over long time, that sort of progress towards what you want and what you want to achieve, what you want to be able to do, whether it's perform at a certain level with a horse or on the ski hill you can't always measure your progress in weeks or months or even it's often in years. Yeah. So this was a long-term thing for you. And I, I wonder, well, two things, I'm wondering two things. I had this previous episode with a woman in Florida, Ayana Verdi of the Verdi Eco Farm School. And we spent some time talking about the value of animals in kids' lives, Emily. And it was Mm. a really interesting discussion because For her, what she brought to the conversation was the idea that being around animals is actually an exercise in empathy. And Mm. because you really have to kind of get to know the animal itself, you have to walk in its shoes in order to work with it and care for it and be with it. And I'm wondering what you think about that in terms of your time on the horse farm and even other experiences that you may have had with animals. Oh yeah, I mean, animals teach humans so much. I mean, all nature, plants, animals. But for me, horses growing up, that is where I started to learn about, (laughs) you know, empathy and also the limits of my own will, you know, Mm. in some ways that like I could want something to happen, but I really had to think carefully. And again, often over long periods of times in order for it to happen. When I was in high school, I was taking care of this woman's horse for the four years that she was in veterinary school and the horse's name was just in time. And he was a thoroughbred off the track, Mm. like a racehorse, retired racehorse. And he was a nice horse, but rarely did sort of what I hoped he would do. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, knowing him was really just a lesson in baby steps and incremental growth mm. and, and learning. But yeah, animals do a lot of things for kids. You know, the first school, I, the, one of the schools I worked at in California called the Thatcher School. Mm. The founder of that school would give every kid a horse their ninth grade year. And the, the saying was that the outside of a horse is good for an inside of a boy. Mm. And there's definitely some enduring truth in that. I mean, people just feel better, I think, when they spend time around animals, mm. in addition to everything they learn. Mm. You know, my one experience with a horse when I was young was that my brother Paul put me up on a horse in Montana without a saddle, and about 30 seconds later, that horse threw me a very long way. And I think <laughs> yeah. that was the end of my relationships with horses, but definitely yeah. an enduring lesson about, you know, yeah. what it means to be small in the universe as compared to large animals, <laughs> you know? Yep. Yep. It can go sideways pretty quick. Very quickly. Oh my. And the other thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, when we think about teams, and that's been something that's been coming up a lot lately in these episodes with educators, which is great because I'm super glad that conversation is happening now. When you think about being a captain of a team, I think being a captain of an alpine skiing team is a little different from being, say, like I was captain of my football team. Mm -hmm. Like, how is that different? What was it like being the captain of a ski team like that? What were the complexities of that captaincy? Yeah. In college, I was captain of the lacrosse team, which is you know a team sport, and then also the ski mm. team, which is a more individual sport. And I think the differences are, you know, you're in an individual sport, your success is much less intertwined with the rest of the folks on your team. So in some ways, it's a lot more like, school is it's traditionally set up in some ways. Like we all get on the same bus to get to the hill and we all sort of race the same course or train on the same course, mm -hmm. but we have different outcomes and we can't really impact each other's outcomes that mm -hmm. much. You might think at first that you can't, mm -hmm. but actually when you train with people who are better than you, you get better. So, you know, having a team of folks that you're skiing and training with and being with, I think really it accelerates and improves performance hmm. in a way that I don't think we think about when we think about individual sports. And college is kind of unique around that. And there are a lot of people in the time that I was sort of coming up in ski racing who really believed that, you know, lots of kids would go right from sort of the junior circuit to the not me, but kids faster than me mm -hmm. <laughs> would go from the junior circuit, like right into the Olympic, the U S team or the Olympic training program. Yeah, And there was a really interesting school of belief that never really got too much traction that it's actually really important for those athletes to spend time as part of a team. And so there was, there were some folks, including my husband, actually, who were trying to figure out how to funnel those elite skiers through the sort of NCAA route so that they didn't miss that uh. for their own well-being and also for their performance. Mm. So it's interesting, like you can try to accelerate one person's performance in isolation, but it ends up with all sorts of complications. Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting. So kind of switching directions a little bit, you shared with me that you have a great passion for Ulana Lauhala, which is mm -hmm. a complex weaving tradition born on the great arc of Pacific voyaging history. And this, of course, sent me down a rabbit hole, Emily, of learning. And by the time I had emerged, I knew more about this weaving tradition than I ever anticipated. So for a minute, let's consider, you know, the humble hala leaf, which is used in this type of weaving and center it in the context of your, your life, your humanity, your life as an educator. Mm. Like, how did your passion mm. 
for ulana or weaving begin? And what parts of this tradition's complex history, which, by the way, is part ecological, part cultural, part historic, mm-hmm. part educational, grabbed you and drew you in? And what role did something called G-term play in mm. this weaving journey? Mm, thank you for asking. This is one of my favorite things mm-hmm. to talk about. So Lauhala weaving is something that I admired from a distance, sort of casually, before 2019. When we launched the idea of G-term at Punahou, the idea was to create spaces where adults and kids were learning side by side, where sort of expertise was kind of reframed as something that lots of different types of people had. We thought about it as an unfreezing of our sort of professional learning, an opportunity to do something with kids without the risk of radical changes to our existing classrooms or or curriculum that were there. So that was sort of the purpose of mm-hmm. G-Term from an educational standpoint. And so in thinking about what's something I want to learn about that I have no expertise in and how could I call in other experts, I asked some of my colleagues at the time if they would be willing to teach a, a weaving class. So we had four days, exactly four days. And it was, what I didn't know was, you know, how... <laughs> What that meant, you know, I was asking people who were beautiful weavers, but who weren't necessarily kumu or teachers of weaving. They hadn't been sort of granted that status by the the folks who are master weavers in the tradition. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of days later, they brought in 14 of their friends from their weaving group, their weaving hui. And there were 20 students, including me and another faculty member. And we spent four days learning about the plant about how you collect and prepare the leaves for weaving. And then we did a small project. We sort of made a cover for a water bottle. And I just loved that. I've always loved working with my hands. Mm. And so I kept weaving. I just kept sort of making more water. I made a cover for every bottle in my house Mm. and, and sort of couldn't stop. And that interest and initiative, some of the folks who were weavers in the community took note of that and were generous enough to sort of invite me to learn my next project, which is how it works in this sort of really tight circle of folks in this space of Ulana Lauhala in Hawaii. Hmm. Since then, I mean, it's been a real obsession, I think is the safe word for my connection to this craft. I've had the really good fortune to learn with amazing people. My kumu is Cal Shibata, who was with us in that first G-term. And I'm part of a weaving hui that comes from the lineage of knowledge of an incredible woman named Gladys Grace, who was from South Kona on Hawaii Island. And she and another number of master weavers decided at one point that it was really important that they begin to teach people outside of their family. Mm. And because their family members weren't invested in perpetuating the knowledge of this craft. And so she started teaching people outside of her family. The state even sort of funded some apprenticeships in Lauhala weaving at that Mm. time. And, And now there's hundreds of people who weave in this tradition. Mm. And it's... It's amazing. It's taught me so many lessons, you know, patience, persistence, a lot of the same things actually when, now that you mentioned it, that sort of connect to that time on the horse farm as a kid, Mm. but also just the opportunity for 
it's a meditative practice once you get going at it. And I've never been one who could sit quietly and sort of meditate to calm my mind. So especially over the last few years, which have been so difficult in schools, this is something that I can turn to that mm-hmm. has been quite healing. Wow. That last part that, you know, here in Hawaii, since this podcast is being listened to all over the place, you know, most people talk about goosebumps, but here in Hawaii, we call it chicken skin. Mm -hmm. That part gave me chicken skin because I'm thinking about how, you know, there are just so many complex elements to this, but one of them is that when you do something like this, when you have something, it doesn't, I don't suppose it needs to be exactly with your hands. Like I'm pretty obsessed, obviously about this podcast Mm -hmm. and 86 episodes into it. I can't not do it right in the same way that you can't not do the weaving, but in times of struggle, in times of difficulty like this pandemic has been, these are things that really carry you through in a way. Mm -hmm. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you can talk a little bit more about like what that felt like as the pandemic came down and as you were continuing the tradition that, you know, the learning that you were doing with weaving. Well, the pandemic, I mean, as it started here in Hawaii, it created this season of sort of quiet, you know, the, the visitors stopped coming, things slowed down in a way that was really beautiful. But at the same time, things also professionally were like, we're going a thousand miles a minute. Yep. So that contrast of being able to be in the ocean every day, you know, to go surf in Waikiki without any tourists, to be able to participate in this, this incredible practice and craft, it, it created space for those things in a time when there was very little sort of cognitive space for other things as we we're trying to rebuild schools online and mm. and then with COVID protocols. And I imagine it's similar to the way you feel about the podcast, Josh. I mean, the other really incredible gift that weaving gives you when you're when you're doing it, when you're making a hat, which is what I love to weave, mm. when you're making a hat for someone in the tradition in which I learned, you you're compelled to only think good thoughts while mm. you're weaving mm-hmm. and put positive energy into that because it's something that's going to be sitting on somebody's head. It's a, (laughs) it's a huge responsibility. So if you put bad energy into it, not only will your weaving not look good, but it, you know, that's a burden you would want to bestow on somebody. And then once you're finished, so you have the incredible joy of thinking about somebody you love or care about, or maybe, you know, I've made hats for people like maybe I don't know them super well, but I appreciate them. And that sort of gratitude practice, you know, there's all sorts of research that shows the benefits of, of that and to do that sort of in a sustained way and then give it away, which is another piece of the sort of mm. Hawaiian knowledge that's been so powerful for me in, in learning about this, that you create things and then you give them yes. to people. Mm. And as an educator, that might be something that feels intuitive, but it's actually something that in most cases requires a lot of teaching. I mean, we do, we've done a bunch of classes with the, and experiences with the kids now around weaving Lauhala. And when you put a lot of time and energy into something, it's really, it's not always intuitive to give it away. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like I want to keep this or I want to hold this. And yeah. so that's been a really interesting part of this as well. Oh, that's so neat. I mean, I released an episode late last night with the executive director of the Makahana Kaike program in Hana, Maui. And I, I'm now just sitting here thinking that when I texted her with the link, 
it was a gift. I was giving it away yes. to her and giving it away mm-hmm. to the whole community. And I mm-hmm. love I love how you framed that. Mm-hmm. So coming back to G-Term for a second. So given G-Term was and is specific to Punahou School's culture, although I'm sure there's many similarities at other schools with different names, mm-hmm. what might be the first steps an educator or an education leader might take to design something similar at their local public, private or charter schools, something similar to G-Term with its with similar intentions? Yeah, I mean, we certainly did not come up with the idea at Punahou. This is something, you know, I had a January term in college that was the same idea, just a month long, sort of different kind of class than your regular course of study. Mm-hmm. And lots of schools have these short-term programs. I think the most important thing for a school community to do if they're thinking about embarking on something like this is to determine and share what the purpose of it is and be really clear about what they hope it will achieve for the school community and for students. It's not super compelling to say, oh, we're going to do this little thing because lots of other schools do it. And it's kind of sounds cool, but to really figure out a message that will resonate with the community and give it a sense of purpose around something that's hard because it's, you know, building any new program is challenging disruption and sort of patterns and and norms and schedule for teachers and families is different. So getting a purpose that everyone can come behind is really important. And there's so many, a G-term like experience can be the answer to so many questions. How do we create something where our kids can get off of our campus? Mm -hmm. How do we create learning environments that aren't bound by their traditional course schedules and Mm -hmm. credits requirements? How do we create an opportunity for our teachers to be designers in ways that push the limits of their comfort? How do we you know, frame people who are non-faculty as experts in our community? We've also had lots of members of our incredible staff team mm. support G-term experiences. Right. So it can be the answer to a lot of questions and, and it can be the solution to a lot of problems. But I think identifying which one you want to focus on mm. as a school community will help you sort of frame the experience and and sort of bracket what types of things you could do for kids. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And so kind of maybe related to G-Term or possibly unrelated to G-Term, you noted to me that one of your most fun experiences at Punahou was a pop-up coffee shop your Spanish students <laughs> designed and developed. So what is that story of learning? I was like, what? <laughs> what was it that got your Spanish students engaged in this project, if that is the right word, like engaged in the project, or actually is the right word a project like was it or was it something more than just sort of a mere project yeah it was gosh eight or nine years ago now before i was principal and we were engaged as a school just a teeny bit of context for how Mm. my kids got to be running a coffee shop (laughs) in in the library library, we were engaged in the conversation across our camp our k-12 campus about the future of libraries and Mm. we were beginning a pretty significant building project in the grades three through five that was going to involve a reconstruction and redesign of the junior school. So the K-8 library and the folks in the high school were kind of like, wait a second, shouldn't this be a K-12 conversation? Cause if we're going to redefine what a library means to the K-8 students, eventually they become nine, 12 students. So we're so fortunate to engage in this really interesting conversation about what libraries and should look like, what the purpose of them is, what kinds of work we want kids to be doing in them, 
if they're a place where kids go to get resources that they need to learn, how have those resources changed? And so we developed, we went on a year long research inquiry about that as a school. People traveled all over the world, looked at workspaces, looked at libraries in mm. you know, community libraries, school libraries, libraries in colleges and universities, and brought back insights from that. And then we synthesized all of those insights into a series of design principles that we thought should represent how kids operated in these spaces that were sort of age appropriate, but across the campus. Mm -hmm. And one of the design principles that we came to was kids needed a, I don't know if this is the right word, but it was sort of, it was the one we used that they needed buzzy spaces, spaces <laughs> where, where learning was sort of visible and, you know, there was interaction going on and they were mm. cafe-like in their feel. And so because the junior school was busy building this building, the high school, we had no plans or resources to actually rebuild our library mm. at that point. So we thought, well, what we can do is pilot some of these ideas and see what we learn and, you know, really test out what do these design principles look like in practice and kind of low resolution prototypes. And so, so I was engaged in that project and mm -hmm. my Spanish five class, you know, second semester seniors in the non quote unquote honors track of Spanish we were well served by uh, some sort of external motivation to do something in their senior spring. And so they loved the idea of food and gathering people. And I floated this idea of prototyping a cafe and they were all in, like they wanted to run mm. it. And so we converted the, there's a little art gallery on the edge of the library at Punahou now. And we turned it into a coffee shop mm. and people could come in and sit and do work there. They could get a drink or a little snack. Different groups had different little experiences that they designed. Like our kids would ask people to order in Spanish and give them, mm. you know, little cheat sheets about how to do that. But it was really an experiment in what learning spaces can look like. And mm. it also served the needs for my kids of engaging with the language in a way that gave them purpose. Mm. It was a place lots of other Spanish classes would come and have a project there or an experience sort of facilitated by my kids. But it also was just a place to come hang out. Mm. It was really, fun. it was mm. super fun. Wow. A buzzy space, right? Yeah. Where they could come and, and do their Spanish, actually, you know, be real in Spanish, yep. learn to speak That's Spanish, right. speak Spanish with other people. You know, I remember kind of around the same time, I recall finding like it wasn't an app, it was an online product of some sort that was called Coffifity. And if you went to it, you could actually select the sounds of coffee shops that would That's play, awesome. right? Like, so I was spending a lot of time alone studying at that point. I think I was getting my master's and and I just like, I need the sounds of people around me. Right, And yeah. so, yeah, I got that. So <laughs> kind of maybe a weird shift in topic for our listeners, but what the heck, I'm, I'm going to go down this path anyway. So I'm going to come back to your weaving. So for the past dozen years, Emily, since Instagram was on the scene, I've used my personal feed to do an art project that I was never encouraged to do when I attended Punahou School. In the past few years, as I went for long walks in Hawaii or on trips outside the state and abroad, I documented my quote, reading of the world, if you will, my sense of mm -hmm. what was beautiful mm -hmm. and complex and interesting, my sense of place. And I was using mm -hmm. my Instagram feed to do that. In effect, I was capturing my learning. 
So your Instagram feed, which I encourage our listeners to go see because it's amazing, seems to do the exact same thing. So if anyone is scrolling through at Emily McCarran on Instagram, what is all the learning they would see captured? Like what hints or direct evidence of mastery or growing mastery might they find in your feed? And not just necessarily about weaving. Gosh, that is, that's an interesting question. It makes me want to scroll through my feed to see. It's mostly about weaving for me. Yeah, It's funny. I mean, that's where I used to think of myself as an early adopter to sort of social media. And I've been on Twitter for a long time. And that's kind of a more sort of professional education kind of space. And Facebook is where a bunch of, you know, all of us old futs have all of our friends and stuff. It's <laughs> like our, you know, our address book. But Instagram felt like a new space. Kind of the way they describe you know, people who describe learning spaces like coffee shops as the third space. It's not your home. It's not your work, Yeah, but it's something else. And that's kind of what Instagram is for me. So it makes me want to post more too, but most of the things on there are weaving. And, and I think it's because I, I started using Instagram at about the time I started or just before, I guess I became obsessed with weaving. So, mm. and it also has been a way to connect with a community mm. of folks, especially in this pandemic time. Mm. And a lot of the weavers are not of the demographic that you might think would be using social media. Mm. A lot of them are, but it's been a way to share and get feedback. So in some ways it is like a learning management system. If you look at the pictures that I've posted, whatever you see, you know, evidence of weaving and the work that goes into weaving. And there's certainly references, as you were saying, to the natural beauty. But if you look at my messages, which you can't obviously, but that is super interesting because that's where weavers have given me feedback on things that I've posted. Oh, wow. And a lot of it is, you know, sometimes someone might teach me a word for something that I had learned how to do Mm. that, you know, I learned a different word or inviting me to see the, you know, learn something about the history of something related to something that I've posted I've also had really interesting and difficult sort of exchanges on Instagram with folks who have really strong points of view about, you know, who should be Mm. gaining what kind of gain from traditional indigenous practices. Yeah. I'm not native Hawaiian by any stretch of the imagination. I'm, you know, Howley from the mainland, the continental United States. And so that's also a place where I've learned about Mm. that. So yeah, really, it's interesting. It's certainly not what Instagram was necessarily designed for, but. Yeah, that's, oh, that's just amazing. You know, when, when I think of my own feed and as I listen to you talk about what you've posted on Instagram, I sort of, I'm starting to realize that in some ways I was answering a question, my own question maybe of what is beautiful. And mm-hmm. I wasn't doing that by writing those words. I was doing that by posting what ended up being mm-hmm. hundreds of images not of people, but of places of everywhere Mm -hmm. that I was walking. In a sense, I was kind of answering that question slowly but surely. And it sounds like in a way you were kind of answering the question, at least in terms of your weaving of what, what is mastery? Like how did, what does it look like? And what is the dialogue that happens as you move towards mastery, which is really interesting in that way. Yeah. And what, yeah. And what's the evidence of your process and what's the the and progress. And yeah, that, that really resonates. Josh. I mean, in some ways this answers the question of what am I proud of? Yes. Right. And 
Yeah, as you mentioned, it's it's less rare. That it's more, it should be increasingly common that we ask kids to do that in school. Show me what you're proud of. Show me your best work. Mm, yeah. I think also in my feed, Emily, you know, I know that we spend a lot of time as educators and even just in general in society right now talking about likes, right? And that there's mm. all of these pitfalls and dangers to like culture and and all of that. And I know that Instagram has actually changed its protocol so that the likes are not there anymore. Mm. But I recall when I was posting photos of what I thought was beautiful on my long walks, and I was looking at the number of likes that are coming in, I was always wondering, like, why would I get you know, a hundred likes on one thing and 20 likes on another. What was it that people were interacting with? What was it that they were liking, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I suppose as an artist, you're always wondering that if you put a piece up and you and you get a big crowd around that piece, if it's a painting up on the wall, you're probably mm. wondering, why are these people crowded around this piece? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Because I have a teenage child who is deep in the how many like that gets signaling some sort of value to whatever was shared. Yeah. And so I think maybe because of that, I feel so strongly that the number of likes is not something I have control over or something of great interest to me. It's not a signal that I really value in any way. Yeah. Which I probably lean heavier that well, probably because I don't like there's not many people interacting with my Instagram page. It's, you know, a handful of my friends and acquaintances, but I, I do think that the, you know, the changes being made in that space, the need for someone else to validate your worth is pernicious for young people. And that's just something we keep having to remind folks that, yeah. you know, you put it out there because you believe in it and come what will right. a little bit. Exactly. So, Hey everyone, stay with us. We'll be back with more questions for Emily McCarran. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Emily McCarran, who since 2015 has been the high school or academy principal at Punahou School. Emily also serves on the board of the Mastery Transcript Consortium and is headed to China this summer to take the helm of the Keystone Academy in Beijing. So Emily, I want to ask you about the building of Kamaola, a voyaging mm. canoe that became the focus of a great deal of learning for Punahou students. You were a key administrator who gave a green light to this complex project. And it's hard for our listeners to imagine what we're talking about, especially those who might be outside of Hawaii. So let's approach this story with two questions. So first one is, what is the brief origin story of Kamaola? Where did the idea come from 
And what was the vision and the mission of the project out of the gate? And in what ways was it a pioneering project, if you will? And what were its general learner outcomes? Sorry, that was like six questions built into one, but you know, it's just, how did this thing come about? Yeah, I can take a crack. Thank you. Thank you for bringing this question up. The genesis of this project is one of the things I'm most proud to have been proximate to. It is just really such a cool thing. The idea came actually from the opportunity to really listen to one of our students who had gotten engaged in the voyaging community here in Hawaii and really had the earnest question of why doesn't Punahou, the school that educated, you know, Nainoa Thompson, who's sort of the patriarch of modern voyaging in Hawaii, head of the Polynesian Voyaging Society. Why doesn't Punahou have a canoe? Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of simple question. It's not a question that I had really pondered as an educator or as an administrator. I had deeply pondered the question, how do we center this remarkable indigenous knowledge in our kids' experience? And that's more a question that is appropriate in the space that I was sitting in the school. And so when this student came with kind of an answer to that question, well, we center it by building a canoe and that students can have a hand in creating and then be sailing for Mm -hmm. years and years to come. It really was really easy to say, yeah, okay, how do we figure this out? And I think for me as an administrator, one of the big things that I think something that's been emblematic of my leadership, I hope is that I, I don't have any, (laughs) if many or any great ideas, but I really believe in listening to people Mm. who have fabulous ideas and figuring out how to say yes to them, how to Mm. resource those great ideas. And this was a case where this, this student came surrounded by a bunch of teachers who also hadn't thought of this as an answer to the question, but once they heard it, really wanted to figure out how to make it work, mm. including, you know, experienced an emerging captain in the Polynesian Voyaging Society, folks who have been on the ground since Hokulea's worldwide voyage. And so we just started saying yes. And it, this project required, you know, a whole new administrative structure. Basically, we we're going to, we we're, you know, we had a team of folks that were supporting things in different ways, both from the, like, how do you get hulls to a canoe who makes yeah. them how do you how do you decide what they're going to be made out of what elements of it can kids be involved in what elements do we have to sort of farm out what insurance does mm-hmm. this new endeavor require you know the less sort of sexy sides of educational programming yeah. how do we find a trailer for this canoe how do we find a place to store it and you know other folks really dove into figuring out the answers to those questions and and I was just there to support and it's been amazing so it's been a very inductive process, I guess. You know, it's like, we okay, we start building canoe, we see what's next. So we're constantly vector checking mm. as an institution. You know, we're on this path. Is this the right path? Oh, we need to turn a little bit this way. Let's go this way a little bit and check again. I mean, not unlike sailing <laughs> or navigating in the open ocean. Mm-hmm. You head somewhere in good faith and you trust that you're going to use all the facilities and talents and resources to get where you need to go, even though you're a little uncertain of where you're going. I mean, that's the lore of sort of Polynesian migration and navigation across the Pacific. So it made sense to sort of have that ethos in this project. And yeah, so the learning outcomes are, I mean, it's, it's a tool for engagement, like a lot of sort of experiential things. I mean, 
we have a canoe. So we started the first year with some elective courses that, well, the first year was just, it was a project. It was like a club that kids were engaged in and, you know, they could come and, you know, lash stuff or build, you know, sand the yakos or whatever. And then we had a course, elective course that Mm. 11th and 12th graders could take. And now next year, Josh, there's voyaging at every grade level in the high school. There's a ninth grade class, a 10th grade class, 11th and 12th grade classes. And kids could really choose that as a pathway Mm. or they could dip their toes in it and be engaged in it. So it's just, it's really exploded. There's lots of interest, lots of excitement. It's really, really beautiful. Wow. And I just see it as sort of the embodiment, the literal representation, the modeling of It Takes a Village. And Mm -hmm. you you start with an idea and then you get a bunch of people who get behind that idea. And then all of a sudden, everybody's offering their inputs, they're offering their hands, their minds Mm -hmm. in the process. And it's, and it just begins to move forward, just like literally like a voyage moves forward. Mm -hmm. You, you, at some point, what's marvelous to me is that at some point you unmoored from the dock, literally, (laughs) and mm-hmm. sailed on this program, right? And mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. took it took a lot to make that decision given the context, you know, within which it was born. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. So I, I want to ask, in the story of Kamaola, there's one person, a recent Punahou graduate named Cole, and he got very involved in the emerging voyaging program as a voyaging club leader and much more. And now he's studying business at the University of Utah. So what are, Emily, the so-called transferable skills Cole took with him to Utah? Like, what is the case to be made for Cole taking a voyaging elective rather than, say, another calculus course or some other course suggested as pre-business, given that, you know, time is limited and you can't do everything? There are only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. I mean, if if someone wanted to emerge in the business field, this, you know, the things that we hear from folks in that in that field, you know, navigating uncertainty, figuring out how to work with diverse teams, optimizing resources available, increasing efficiency. All of those things are things that are so clear and evident in a program like this. Whereas, yes, you could take another sort of high-level math course and there'd be some signal of achievement in a place, maybe adjacent to the business space. But I can't imagine anything more useful than doing something like this. If you wanted to be an entrepreneur or go into business, it's, it's just, we're talking about generating and building bravery in kids <laughs> and the mm-hmm. ability to like, to take calculated risks, to know how to leverage the talents of the people around you. I mean, it's, mm. it seems like a no brainer. It's amazing. It seems a little bit controversial sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So this seems like a good segue into CBL or competency-based learning. I'm going to read a definition of CBL from Punahou's website and ask you a couple of questions about it. So competency-based learning, or otherwise known as CBL, is an academic framework that emphasizes the value of student-centered personalization with classroom and assessment practices that work to support the unique learning path of every individual student. So Mm -hmm. in what ways is the voyaging program, which is an elective of sorts, but as you've described, it's now become way bigger than that, a Mm -hmm. prime example of CBL in practice? Like, how can we use the voyaging program to explain to our listeners what CBL is and what it means in practice?
competency-based learning is exactly what you just described. So it's a structure that allows a system of assessment and reporting that holds a school and a teacher and in the classroom context accountable for moving kids towards the named learning outcomes. And the voyaging program, as we get really clear as a school about what our learning outcomes are, and we name them and, and we you know, break them down into their, their smaller pieces, we find that so many of the things that we really want kids to learn, sort of you know, creativity, empathy, communication skills, collaboration skills, understanding their worldview and, and where they come from, the way that their past impacts who they are and, and what their path forward is. All of those things that any school identifies as the learning outcomes. Once you start doing that and you're really honest with yourself, you see that kids can achieve those in lots of ways that are actually adjacent to what we would call the traditional academic curriculum in team sports. For example, that's where so many kids point to when you mm-hmm. ask them where they learn about sort of collaboration and, and communication even. And yet we devote tons of time in other subjects towards those ends. So it's really about schools getting really concrete and in some ways efficient and putting resources towards those things that actually engage kids and really move the needle on those learning outcomes. And the voyaging program is just a very cool example of that. It's a a place where kids' engagement shifts from the three sort of levels of engagement. You're sort of affectively engaged, cognitively engaged, or behaviorally engaged. And behavioral engagement is what most kids are in school, right? Good students, they'll just, they do the work or whatever. And cognitively, like they might find it kind of interesting, but like affectively is like they are passionate about, like you're in it. Like it's the way you feel about this podcast, the way I feel about Mm -hmm. weaving, like you can't imagine not doing it. And so you're willing to do hard things to learn what you need to learn. And it turns out all those things that you need to learn to be good at these are the things that we want schools to teach people. Mm. I mean, this one happens to be a particularly beautiful Trojan horse in some ways because it also answers that need of centering Indigenous knowledge and place-based learning Mm. in a traditional academic curriculum. So I was going to ask you about, you know, for example, the difference between a biology class or chemistry class not using CBL versus, you know, either of those two classes using CBL as an approach. And I think you just answered that question. So so let me kind of shift it. To me, Emily, one of the fastest ways to get parents to bust out their pitchforks and go on the warpath is to propose shifting from a grades-based transcript to a competency-based or mastery-based approach to reporting learning. So what are the fundamental objections of parents writ large in your experience with CBL? I think any objections that we experience in that space come from a lack of understanding about mm. what colleges and universities are looking for. Because mm. mm-hmm. the fundamental foundation of those objections is actually based on a, a very real fear that this change somehow limits their kids' access to what they want after high school. Mm. That's all. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, you know, people who are school administrators know and see this every day. Whenever a parent is feels like what's something we might call as difficult with school administration, it's, you know, most of the time it's because they love their kid so much and they want everything for them. And so, you know, digging down into that, that's really what we saw with competency-based learning. People just want to make sure that their kids are going to have access to extraordinary opportunity after high school. Mm. That's really the only barrier. Mm. So, you know, kind of pushing this a little bit further, I think 
I think it's common knowledge, Punahou School experienced such a CBL pitchfork moment, or maybe a couple of them. Mm-hmm. I read online two letters from Punahou's president, Mike Latham, who wrote to the school's parent community. And the first reads a little bit like a retreat from CBL in the face of pretty intense opposition. But the second reads like some progress was made in the intervening months towards a greater understanding of how CBL achieves, quote, the aims of a Punahou education. So mm-hmm. what happened? What can our listeners learn from Punahou's experience as it moves forward with this? Well, I think that what happened was we really leaned into communication and education with families about what we were doing, mm. what's staying the same, what's different, all of the research behind why CBL works, that it actually is increasing and improving student outcomes. And also, you know, we made it really clear that this this was Punahou would take a path that was appropriate for Punahou's ability to navigate a slower rate of change. So whatever the organization's ability and tolerance for change has to be considered. Mm-hmm. When we started the work, the sort of shorthand was, yeah, we're getting rid of grades. And by the time we sort of went through a really intense season of parent education and partnership, it was Punahou is continuing to explore changes and innovations in learning and education as it always has. And it is leveraging those and and also expanding those and scaling those where they're deemed to be successful and appropriate and where there's interest on the part of kids and families in those experiences. Mm. So it was really about parent education. And I've thought a lot about if I had it to do over again, leading with that as opposed Mm. to trying to explain with that. You know, we did a little bit of parent education out front, but we could have, I mean, we, we had dozens, I think 20, like two hour sessions that parents could sign up for where they could come hear a little bit about the research behind it. And then we gave them a clipboard and they go observe a class and look for student engagement and actually sort of measure it as educational researchers and then come back and discuss. And every single person, every single parent who attended or family member who attended one of those sessions Mm -hmm. came back thinking, gosh, that was really interesting. That's super well-researched. I want my kids in those types of classes. And, and there still might be questions about, you know, it's a different way of assessment than most people experienced in school. Although mm-hmm. you also can point out like, you know, people who went to medical school, people who went to went on to other fields where there's apprenticeships or practices, the assessment model is actually not that, it's not new. It's the way that organizations measure growth and performance where people's lives are on the line if people mm-hmm. underperform mm-hmm. <laughs> like medical school. So it's really actually quite effective. And that's been happening for thousands of years. That's right. <laughs> because yeah. that's really the way that people have trained. I mean, it goes right back no. to your yeah. to your weaving, in effect, which is low stakes. It's not that I'm getting heart surgery, but mastery is what mastery is, right? That's super that's interesting. Right. Yeah. So hey, everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Emily McCarry. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler, 
Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, we are back with Emily McCarran, the soon-to-be former academy principal at Punahou School in Honolulu, and soon-to-be executive head of school at the Keystone Academy in Beijing. So Emily, I'm gonna keep going with this subject. You shared with me a remarkable video from your personal and professional website, which you described as capturing Punahou School's aspirations going forward. And in that video, which features multiple alumni voices speaking about learning by doing, Albert Cheng, Punahou class of 1998, and now the chief operating officer at Amazon Studios, says that in reality, when you get out into the world, grades don't matter anymore. What matters is one's ability to take a problem and solve it and showcase it and deliver on that particular idea. So I have a couple of questions about this. In effect, all of the Punahou alumni featured in this film are challenging Punahou to change. And if I'm a teacher at Punahou, do I have institutional permission to deep dive into CBL, PBL, mastery, and challenge-based, place-based, culture-based learning? Like, do I have institutional permission to move away from grades and other types of, maybe we might call them reductive metrics? And what happens when it comes time to submit grades? Like, how does that how does that all work? Yeah, I think that's one of the big questions in this space for Punahou and institutions like Punahou who have been, you know, quite successful by traditional measures. You know, one, what's the yeah. the impetus for change in a context like that? And what are the risks associated with that? So Punahou has decided that it's not, teachers don't have permission to move away from giving grades. Hmm. They do have permission to you can look at all of the Aurora Institute has an incredible definition of competency-based learning that really is about, you know, student agency and effective feedback. And you really can design towards all of those values and still give grades at the end of the day. Mm. And that's an improvement. So the sort of all or nothing thing, that's not going to work quickly in a lot of schools like Punahou. Mm-hmm. You know, different schools have taken different approaches to this. Like the Hawkins School in Cleveland, which is run by the founder of the Mastery Transcript Consortium, they have the Hawkins School, and then they started a second high school from scratch that's based on where the students there will have a Mastery Transcript, and that's all going to be based on a gradeless transcript. Mm-hmm. But their theory of change is that you actually have to have you know, proof of concept Mm. in order to make the more traditionally successful places accept it. Mm -hmm. And the really amazing thing about the Mastery Transcript Consortium so far is that already have hundreds of kids who have been admitted to, I think, over a hundred different colleges and universities with Mastery Transcripts. So even in the first few years of the organization, that proof of concept is there, like kids get into college. We don't have to, and into select highly selective colleges and universities. Hmm. So we don't have to sort of wonder about that anymore. Yeah. But at Punahou, yeah, people have to give grades at the end of the semester. Hmm. And we've created all sorts of systems and algorithms for 
in the courses where teachers want to leverage these pedagogies for minimizing kids' interaction with percentages or letter grades. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we're still giving graded transcripts for Mm -hmm. the time being. Mm -hmm. But in effect, over time, very slowly over time, you're weaving a new tapestry. It's a new quilt, if you will. Yeah, I hope so. It takes time to do that. And I'm also thinking that... Like any skill, I mean, even for an educator, the process of using something like competency-based learning or working towards mastery learning is a skill that an educator has to learn how to use well. And Mm -hmm. that if it's not used well, it can actually be pretty disastrous, you know, in that in effect. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing that, you know, you prompt me to think about is that I was part of a or I attended a, a Getting Smart town hall. You know, Tom Vander Ark, does such a great mm-hmm. job of these town halls. Mm-hmm. And the, the subject of the town hall had to do with sort of where are we in mastery right now. And I was so encouraged, Emily, because I had a couple of college admissions officers speaking on a panel. It's just like, it's amazing how many colleges are really pivoting at this point yeah. and making all things possible for all kids to be able to demonstrate their artifacts of learning, just like you've been doing in your Instagram feed. Yeah. So I feel right. I feel encouraged in this moment. So awesome. So Emily, I I chose this next question because you are in an epic between space between Hawaii mm. and China, between principal and head, between one life and another life, which is a good place to reflect and look back. So mm-hmm. your resume, which lists a whole series of presentations and writings many of which, maybe the majority of which, are about learning online. These presentations and writings go all the way back to 2011. And this list includes your dissertation, which is titled, quote, Care Tactics, the Role of Perceived Teacher Care in Students' Experiences in Secondary School Online Courses. So what really jumped out at me as I deep-dived into all you have written and thought about is the extent to which you were prepared for a global pandemic. No one saw coming, Mm. not even you. So I wonder if you can talk about what was going through your mind and maybe even in your heart what you were feeling in those crazy moments when Hawaii and the nation locked down and suddenly shifted to online learning. What did you feel needed to be done at that moment? What did Hawaii and the nation, even the world, do right? And what were the opportunities maybe that we missed? big question. So mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for the experiences I've I had prior to the pandemic in the online space because it was I remember vividly coming back from a conference on the east coast of the US, you know, at the end of February 2020 and it was sort of looking like gosh, if the world's not going to change, we're going to have to do things a little differently for the next couple of months. That's kind of what we thought. Yeah. And having the experience that I had had in the online learning space and the research that I was lucky enough to do I knew that all that mattered was the relationships that we Mm. took care of between teachers and kids, between teachers and teachers, between teachers and their families, between administration and teachers and parents. And if we framed our work in care of those relationships, we would be okay. So we gathered the administrative team in the academy and, you know, across the campus and just said, 
okay, you know, tomorrow we're going to let the faculty know that they need to take their computers home over break and that we're going to have access to these sort of technological resources and that we're going to be flexible and kind to each other and we're going to iterate when we need to and we're going to be okay. Mm. And that was sort of all the instruction we gave people for the first few months. And obviously we spent the next few weeks rebuilding a school schedule and making sure prior to the pandemic, we had teachers who didn't take their computers home at night, you know, Mm. who didn't, didn't certainly didn't have their coursework up on canvas or whatever learning management system. So it was a real leap for a lot of folks, but we got through that initial part with care, Mm. which was so essential. Mm. And then as we recognized that things were going to go on, we leaned a little bit more into the technical skills of creating spaces that where kids could experience care and also engage in deep learning. Mm. So we improved a lot from those first few weeks to when we reopened school the next fall, also online. Mm. We became a really excellent online school. Wow. Relationships. It just it comes, yeah. it comes up in every, every conversation I have for this podcast that always seems to come back to that. Mm-hmm. And that was your first impulse was we have to take care of each other. But that's born out of your experience in research. Yeah, I had researched that. I don't, I mean, I trust that I would have had some hunch like that (laughs) if not, but I, but I spent years deeply immersed in sort of educational literature and medical literature around nursing and the perception of care in those life and death kind of contexts. And Mm. like, it matters. It just, it matters. You can't minimize it. You know, my experience as a both as a history teacher but also as a person who was specializing in ed tech and this goes back to like 2010 2011 around there when it really started to accelerate i recall emily that for a while there we all kind of went off the deep end and got very obsessed with the devices you know the ipads mm-hmm. and everything else that was happening and then at some point you know, educators started to course correct and they started to go back to the pedagogy, but they also started to go back to the relationships part as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I look back and I, I'm feeling encouraged that we, as a collective community, more or less, were able to make that course correction mm-hmm. because it's so easy to get pulled in by the devices, whatever they happen to be, or the apps mm-hmm. or everything else like that. And I, I wonder what you what you think about our ability to be able to do that? Are we, have we gotten better as a result of the pandemic to make these kinds of course corrections that are in the interests of everybody in these education communities? I think we have. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, sometimes to a fault. So, mm. But I do believe that you know, we've really raised the floor in terms of our ability to leverage technology to reach across time and space to, you know, it's not abnormal now to send an asynchronous video message to somebody, or it's, it occurs to every teacher all the time that they can call anyone in the world (laughs) and that that person can visit their class now. Yeah, There were lots of people who had that instinct prior to the pandemic, but now it's, there's nobody who doesn't have access to that. Yeah, And when technology is really brilliant, as you know, and talk about all the time, is it disappears. You don't, you're not shocked by the technology, you're shocked about what the outcome is that was facilitated by the technology. Right. So it becomes sort of invisible. And the, you know, the best part of all of this is that as much isolation and real, you know, trauma that folks have endured, there's also been 
the capacity to reach out across time and space and, and, mm-hmm. and know how important that is. We are in a terrible season with respect to the sort of mental health of our yeah. young people. And a lot of that is that was happening before the pandemic and the pandemic accelerated that. And the role of technology in that is, you know, it's hard to disassociate those two things, but technology can be an incredible strength. And bottom line, if, you know, if kids don't have connection to humans who are caring for them and seeing them and knowing them and helping them belong, they'll seek that out in other ways. They're yeah. less less healthy than the, the things that we can create in school or family communities. So yeah. it's just about making sure that we're using technology to create community, not to isolate. Yeah, that's awesome. So Emily, we're here at the end. And speaking of connecting to other humans, this is that moment when I often ask guests to shout out to someone, some giant upon whose shoulders they stand. So Jim Scott was the president of Punahou School for 25 years, and you cited him as one of those giants. So what has Jim mm-hmm. Scott meant to your life as an educator and as a person? I'm so grateful to Jim and his really big visions for Punahou and for his trust in me, you know, a young teacher from another part of the world who came here and was just sort of enchanted by his sense that our big, really successful school can mean something to kids who don't have the chance to go there. And that's something that's really framed my educational philosophy, that a school has two responsibilities. It has the responsibility of educating the kids that attend the school, and it has the responsibility of asking big questions about how that work can be done better and then sharing it. And Jim is really persistent and consistent in that message. And I think that message really attracted a lot of people to Punahou. It's, you know, kept a lot of people there and just produced some really incredible Mm -hmm. experiences for kids and educators who aren't employees of Punahou and and don't attend the school. Mm -hmm. You know, I taught at Punahou as well back in the 90s, and Jim and I actually came on board at Punahou at the same moment in the same year. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I remember most, and it's something that he's repeated over and over and over again, is you know, a phrase that he used often when he was speaking to the faculty and staff. And and that phrase is, to whom much is given, much is required. Mm-hmm. And it feels like he's lived his life that way. And it's mm-hmm. it sounds like that's, you know, your relationship with him, and especially the trust part, Emily, that's mm-hmm. huge. I think if our listeners were going to walk away with anything, it's that a trusting relationship between administrators and faculty and staff who are responsible for the kids is absolutely key, right? Mm-hmm. It is. And it's fragile and so important mm-hmm. to keep an eye on. And I mean, that that is really emblematic of Jim's leadership. He pointed to the North Star and then invited people to figure out how to achieve that, mm-hmm. that trust in the community and in the strength and wisdom in the community was really extraordinary and created opportunity for some incredible things to happen in the world. Yeah, that's great. So to all of our listeners out there who are potentially moving up, you know, the leadership path, build trust, build it early and build it often. That's the thing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Emily McCarran, thank you for this time today. Wow, you're in such a crazy moment. You're getting ready to move to China. And it's just wild to me that you're going to pick up, uh, you know, pick up your stakes and and pack your suitcases and head off to Beijing to be the head of Keystone Academy. So we really appreciate you taking the time because it's a special moment. You're kind of looking back as you look forward 
And we hope that you and your family stay safe and in good health. And thank you for this time. Thank you, Josh. Mahalo. Thank you for everything. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow us on Twitter at WSCB Podcast or at Josh Rapoon. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>